Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone and welcome to a new criminal case. On February 9, 1949, on a cold windy day, a cadaver floating in a wicker trunk was discovered in the Pied d'Enfer sinkhole in Les Sables de Long. Only one element helped to identify the victim. The initials RT sewn into his clothing. It was Robert Taylor, a Parisian rentier who had disappeared from his home for the last three days. Parisian police, who were in charge of the case, tried to trace back the thread of this torturous enigma. How did Robert Taylor end up in the troubled waters of Pied-Enfer Abyss when everyone thought he had already moved to Switzerland? Soon two culprits were in the police's view. André Ferré, a governess, and her lover Roland Planet, a young unemployed man. Why did these two guilty people choose to eliminate Robert Taylor and why did they travel miles from Paris down to his corpse in Pudonfer Abyss? I invite you to a story that shook up the French society at the end of the 40s, a time when the traumas of the Second World War were still present. Be careful. Children, take care where you step. Lucien Berger's side. The 14 young boys in her charge didn't really listen to him anymore despite all the instructions given just half an hour ago in front of the sanatorium portal. It's true that some of them were seeing the exhilarating side of the sea for the first time in their lives. On 9 February 1949, in the Day countryside, a bitterly cold wind blew that could freeze you till your bones. But when you're a boy of 9, 10 or 15 years old, these things don't have great importance. Lucian Burgess knew this. He had given in once again. What an idea it was to get everyone out in such a tempest. If anyone felt sick, it would still be his fault. At just over 27 years old, he still had trouble establishing his authority. And then when he wondered, since the end of the war, the children rarely had the opportunity to have fun. So despite the wind roaring, he didn't want to cancel this little excursion. He had been working as an instructor at Saint-Jean-de-Orbestier Sanatorium in Les Sables de Lon for a year now and was very quickly attached to his students, most of whom were war orphans taken under his wings. After a rather difficult climb, the group found itself on the edge of an impossible granite cliff. The breathtaking view before them made the boys exclaim, Oh! and whistles in admiration. Lucian Burgess warned them, however, We are approaching the Pied d'Enfer, especially, no one should run, stay together next to me. I'll go first, and you follow me carefully. Is that understood? Understood. Fourteen voices answered in chorus. Let's go! The Hellswell is well named. It is at the bottom of a cliff. 
where two boulders form an arch around a chasm in which the waves wash aground, forming a deep, dark, foamy pool. In the Wanday countryside, the villagers called it the hole, the devil's chasm, the den, and the legend has it that if an object or a person accidentally falls into it, it will never surface again. Lucian Burgess and his students stood still without uttering a word, awestruck by the spectacle before their eyes, when suddenly one of the boys started shouting and screaming, Sir! Mister! Look over there! What's going on? What are you shouting about? There! There! Look! 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 There's something there! Lucian Burgess kept his hand on his forehead like a windbreaker and began to scan the deep. Good Lord, it's a suitcase! Where is it? Where is it? I saw it too! That's not a suitcase. It's a basket, you idiot. Calm down. If it is, it's the pirate's treasure. Blinking his eyes due to the battering rain droplets, Lucian Burgess tried as best as he could not to lose sight of the object with his eyes. In the turbulent waters, he noticed that the trunk in question was ajar. Then he saw something. A piece of dark gray or black cloth. It looked like an arm. But yes, it was an arm sticking out of the trunk. Pierre Bilvier, the oldest person in the group, saw it too. He informed the others and there was instant panic. In the middle of the tempest, the cries of horror uttered by the boys, mixed with those of their teacher, resounded in the form of an echo. Lucian Burgess tried to calm the boys without success. He had to go and warn the police and the director of the sanatorium. Gathered all his people, he decided to turn back to Saint-Jean-de-Orbestiere. They no longer walked, no longer took a stroll, they now ran with all their might. Some of the boys were pale with terror. They wanted to return to the warmth of their dormitory as quickly as possible, away from this visual nightmare. The police patrol, the fire brigade, and the officers were instantly informed of the situation. They went to the place where the body had been seen by the teacher and his students. The fire service took every precaution to retrieve the trunk with the corpse inside. It was a large trunk indeed. The corpse was that of a man around 60 years old which could not yet be identified. He was bald, and his entire body was swollen from the pressure of the water. How long had he been underwater? No one knew yet. The only clue found on him were the initials RT, in the seams of his suit, along with the contact details of a tailor's shop in Paris. With this minimal element of evidence, the body was sent for autopsy. In those times, legal medicine was not a discipline of its own. Autopsies were carried out by ordinary medical practitioners at the morgues. While conducting the autopsy, the practitioners soon found traces of a noose around the wrist and feet and signs of strangulation on the neck of the victim. The victim had also received violent blows to the face and had sustained multiple localized injuries. The man was probably strangled to death, with marks of struggle on his chest and forearms, indicating that he had probably struggled with his assailants. The police soon discovered the identity of the victim. His name was Robert Taylor a 64-year-old Parisian who had been living for many years in his private hotel 64 Jaffroy Street in the upmarket 17th administrative block. The police learned that he was ill, suffered from a gout, and had been using a cane to get around. A rich man but moderate in taste, he was an annuitant who lived well but never fell for excess. Moreover, at the time of his death, due to the absence of any children, he had no direct heirs. During this time in Sables Dion, the crime scene around the Pieux d'Enfer was encircled by the investigators and orders were issued to restrict public entry. The villagers were interrogated to know if anyone had seen or heard anything suspicious in the last few days. Among them, one man had some revelations to make. 
This witness was called Desiree Gatro, but everyone knew him by the nickname Lagunel. Aged about 50, he lived modestly, doing small DIY jobs, welding and painting without ever wanting more. While being interrogated by the police, Desiree Gatro recounted that one or two days ago, he had seen the headlights of a car at the edge of the Budon Fair. He remembered that the vehicle stopped for a long moment, more than enough time to carry and throw a body off the cliff. The prime question that bothered the investigators was how and why Robert Taylor brought here while he lived in Paris and used to only travel for certain exceptional reasons. Did Robert Taylor succumb to strangulation or did he die later by drowning, being trapped in the trunk, caught by the violent current of this terrifying enclave? This incident quickly made a lot of noise. It was around the end of the 1945 war. Distractions were limited. Daily life was still uncertain. So various new items and criminal cases as such, which were published weekly as articles, kept the public busy. It was a reason enough to be widely debated in the pubs, cafes, and around the dinner table. In order to better understand this case, let's take a quick flashback into what preceded the unfolding of this drama a year ago. It has been three years since the conflict between France and Hitler's Germany ended. Since the establishment of the Vichy regime in the year 1948, the city of Paris had gradually returned to a normal rhythm of life. Soldiers had returned home, shops reopened, and there seemed to be a new era of life in the country. Now people were trying to make up for lost time, to enjoy the moment, to get married, have children, build a house, and make plans for the future. In a Jaffroy street on the third floor of a pretty hotel, lived Robert Taylor, one of those upper-class men who made their fortune during the war. Robert Taylor, a 63-year-old man, lived alone, surrounded by his Louis XV furniture and all his other acquisitions, like paintings by great masters, collector's items, Chinese and Japanese knickknacks, and Persian rugs. He had no wife nor children. He was the owner of a garage situated in Borso Street, which was known for its considerable amount of carpentry workshops and automobile garages. Robert Taylor was considered to be a shrewd businessman with a good reputation, and his concierge spoke very highly of him. The only port of call he had was a nephew, Marshall Taylor, who was also a businessman, the son of his youngest brother, and whom he wished to make his sole heir. The only condition he required of him was that he have a male child. Despite the presence of this relationship, Robert Taylor was a desperately lone man. To make matters worse, his health problems had now interfered with his previously active life. He suffered from gout, which immobilized him more and more and forced him to use a cane to get around. To look after his household and kitchen, he hired a young maid a few months earlier. The latter took advantage of his absence. While he was away on business trips to England, the maid had some men come to his house. On his return, Robert Tellier found his house in a mess. The liquor bottles in the cellar had been largely consumed and objects had been stolen. The young maid was dismissed on the spot. Since then, he had remained suspicious of servants, fearing that he would be fleeced again. The concierge of his hotel advised him to hire a middle-aged woman, preferably a widow or a single woman without children, to avoid such problems in the future. Robert Tellier scoured for small ads looking for any offer from domestic workers but did not find the profile he was looking for. One morning in November 1948, a woman came to his house. Her name, André Ferré, she was a widow, mother to a grown-up daughter who was married and had just returned from Spain, where she lived for many years with her late husband. Above all, Miss Ferré had experience as a housekeeper at Spanish noble families. She demonstrated her skills to Mr. Tallier, 
who was quickly impressed. Andre Ferrier matched everything he was looking for. An older woman with experience in managing an upper-class house, and she was a discreet, unattached, correct, and impeccably dressed person. She had elegance, dismissed Ferrier. A little dry and a little haughty, not inclined to familiarity, and knew her limits. She was hired for the position immediately and without going through any trial period. The next day, she put on her well-ironed white apron and started work at 64 Jaffroy Street. In the next few days, she managed to convince Robert Taylor that he had made the right choice. Madame Ferrier knew how to cook for the rich, selected the linen without mixing materials and colors, and even ironed the small kitchen towels. The house was always spotlessly clean, and in the evening, she served Mr. Tallier a three-course dinner. She always woke up two hours before him and went to bed last. When she received her salary, she thanked him and retired without digging into her envelope. She slept in the maid's room, halfway between the kitchen and the laundry, and Robert Taylor sometimes gave her things to brighten up her room, like cushions, a carpet, porcelain knickknacks, a small chest of drawers, and a music box. At Christmas, in addition to the salary, he gave her a bonus and a bottle of perfume. Monsieur Tellier, you are very good, but you shouldn't have done that. Come on, my dear André. He always called her that. This is nothing compared to what you do for me. Merry Christmas. Between the boss and the housekeeper, a solid friendship developed, an almost fraternal friendship, without any misunderstanding, without the shadow of a sentimental attraction. They formed a unique couple, where each respected and appreciated the other without invading their privacy, without asking indiscreet questions or digging into their past. At night, after having finished cleaning the kitchen and putting away the dishes for special occasions in the cupboard, Ferre, the housekeeper, sat down in a chair with a long sigh. From the pocket of her apron, she took out a vial containing ether, which she sniffed from under her nose. Feeling completely high and relaxed, she thought about her past. Her Catalan husband was shot down by the Spanish dictator's artillery. Her only daughter had left her lover and of whom she had no news. Her life was shattered by all these horrible events. Almost 40 years old, not particularly pretty or graceful. Without any financial resources, André Faré felt that her life had taken a dramatic turn, and nothing would ever be the same again. This material opulence that surrounded her enraged her with each day. Things had gone bad, her destiny had taken an ugly turn. If all was well, she would have been living in her pretty house in Barcelona, surrounded by her garden of gardenas, her husband and their daughter. But the dictatorship and the civil war had shattered everything. André took yet another shot and recalled her foggy memory. Her addiction to ether started in Spain, introduced by a close friend. Since then, she had not been able to stop. In Spain, this substance was freely available. But since her return to France, she had to resort to prescription to obtain it. She invented a number of pathologies, schizophrenia, memory problems, stomach problems, abdominal and menstrual pains, tuberculosis, anything to get the precious sesame that would make her escape from her daily life for a while. Because of her repeated use of this substance, she lost her position as a Spanish-language teacher at a boarding school in Newley for young ladies from good families. The headmistress caught her sniffing in the staff toilet and fired her without paying her. Since then, she had wandered all over the place, with no money, working for a while as a waitress in a shabby cafe in Rouen, as a cashier in a hat shop in La Havre, before moving in with an old friend of her mother's in Cholet, who found her a place as a governess with Robert Taylor. From the very first day of her move to her employer's house, André Faré quickly spotted and counted the valuables in the six-room flat. 
taking advantage of her boss's absence during the day. She went through his bank accounts, rummaged through the drawers of his desk, which he never locked, assuming that she would never think of going inside. She found that there were hundreds of thousands of francs in her boss's bank statements. All these possessions just for a lonely man with no family. It was enormous. From the beginning, his wealth subjugated her and she began to obsess over it. The moderate use of drugs did not help. If she felt at peace for a while, as soon as she woke up the next morning, her demons started to pursue her again. In her head, the word money always became first and foremost. She could not continue like this. It was necessary for her to find a solution. In fact, she always found solutions. Her dream? To become rich and go far away from here. Perhaps retire to a small castle, take a lover and draw a line under all her misfortunes. The sole idea of spending the rest of her life scrubbing pots and pans, doing the washing and serving that impotent old man, Robert Tellier, repulsed her. One night when she was not yet asleep, André Ferré hatched a plan in her head that she was very happy with. She was planning to take her boss's money and she had no intention of backing out. Robert Planet, seated at a bistro table, was reading the newspaper L'Aurore while waiting for his order to arrive. Opposite him, two young women were winking at him as they giggled. Robert Planet smiled back at them, raised his glass in their direction, asked the server boy to offer them something and put it on his credit card. You better think about wiping the slate clean for the last month first, Robert. Come on, I'm fine. I always end up paying you, don't I? My, my, yes, you will pay me. Happy to have the free drink, the two women blew a kiss to Robert Plant, who proudly sat back in his chair and unfolded the newspaper. He never left the woman indifferent. He was a handsome young man of 27, tall, slim, dark, always at his best. A bit of a crooner, a bit of a joker, a bit of a flirt, without a penny to his name. A prototype of the perfect Parisian of those years. To show off, he sometimes called himself as Roland Weltier, a name he gave himself to heighten his status. Single, with no fixed job and no resources, he still lived off his father, who worked as an accountant. His parents spoiled him during his childhood and continued to do so, even though he was old enough to find his own situation. But Robert Planet did not want to spend his life sitting in an office chair, writing and stamping paperwork in some dingy administration like his father did. This regulated middle-class life revolted him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. His evenings, he spent them frequenting cabarets until the early hours of the morning. For a while, he was involved in a case of American cigarette trafficking, for which he spent a month in prison before being released, thanks to a bail paid by his unfortunate father. One thing is certain, Robert Planet had no scruples, no moral sense. For him, all means to achieve his needs are good, even if it meant stealing, lying, and much more. Relying on his good looks, he looked for divorced women or the rich and lonely widows to get his hands on. It didn't matter if she was older than him and preferred middle-aged women. They were more experienced in sexual matters and generally lacked modesty, and he liked that a lot. His girlfriend had dumped him because she was fed up with always paying for both of them when they went to the restaurant out of the cinema. Robert Planet had to let her go without remorse, convinced that another woman would soon take her place. As he looked through his newspaper, a small, very discreet advertisement instantly caught his eye. Seeking a man who can carry out even a dangerous mission. Interesting remuneration in return. Hmm, that sounds like an interesting case. Dangerous mission, that's what he knew. He sent an affirmative answer to the advertiser and was given an appointment in a hotel in the street of Gamar in the following days. Robert Planet arrived at his best behavior, went up to the concerned room and found himself face to face with a kind of small brownish woman dressed all in black, Andre Ferre. During his first meeting, the housekeeper looked at this handsome man who was so sure of himself and his beauty with contempt. He tried to cheer her up, but she did not cooperate, remaining cold and inscrutable. It's clear that we are not of the same world, young man, so I beg you to dispense with the familiarities. This is why I have called you here. Andre Ferre first wanted to test him, to know if he would be able to carry out the mission she wanted to give him. During the second meeting, she took power over him. Robert Planet, true to his character, tried to force her into his arms and kissed her. But she slapped his face before getting to the heart of the matter. She later explained that her boss was rich, that he was bad and despicable. She portrayed him as a former collaborator, having made his fortunes thanks to the high Nazi officers who were his friends, a vulgar collaborator, a seller of France. She needed his help to get hold of his considerable fortune, estimated at several hundred thousand francs. Robert Planet opened his eyes wide. It was a done deal. It promised to be an exciting adventure. During the third meeting, the housekeeper agrees to have sex with her future accomplice, just to get him hooked on. It was only at the end of the third and the fateful meeting that she revealed her true plans to him, to kill her boss and get rid of his body. Robert Planet, already under the yoke of this unscrupulous praying mantis, accepted the offer. So everything was set, it was not time to act. The criminal project was built on her own logic. First, they had to find a car and he would have to drive it. But it turned out that Planet didn't have a license. She decided to find a driver, even if it costed more. A young railway worker, Charles Jules André, was pointed out to her. André Fari met him and said she needed him as a driver. She promised to pay him 200,000 francs, with which she would have to find a vehicle, and the rest would be for him. Charles Jules André spotted a second-hand Matt Ford from 1939, but still in very good condition. The only problem was that it was a real petrol guzzler, 
The housekeeper assured him that it didn't matter. He could keep it in reserve. It was early February, 1949. Andre Faré came to see her boss in his office. She had something important to tell him. Don't tell me that you want to leave me, my dear Andre. I won't find anyone as serious and diligent as you. Oh no, Monsieur Talier, not at all. I have absolutely no intentions of leaving. It's just that I'd like to propose a little thing to you. That's the spirit. Tell me what it is. Andre Fari told him that the day before, she had been contacted by a gold bullion dealer who wanted to sell his stock at half price. It could be an interesting business for such a brilliant businessman and who knew all about business as much as a valiant boss. Yes, why not? Taylor agreed to meet the bullion dealer. The next day around noon, Robert Planet arrived in the Blush flat in Geoffroy Street. André Ferré had both the men introduced by the back staircase. Hands were shaken and Robert Planet was invited to sit down. The housekeeper, in order to keep a better eye on his movements, took a position behind Robert Taylor. But very quickly, the latter, as a cautious and wise businessman, sensed that there was something wrong with the attitude of this young man who was little too jovial and dressed like a dandy. What is this kid doing selling him gold bars? Unconvinced, Robert Talier first wanted to test him to be sure. Do you know what an ingot is? How much does it weigh? How much is it worth? How is gold market doing at the moment? Rapidly confused by these technical questions, Robert Planet did not know what to answer and sent distressed looks to his accomplice, who in turn urged him to speak, to say something. Robert Talier immediately doubted his competence in the matter and asked him to leave. Instantly, the housekeeper accompanied the young man to the exit, but she did not let him out and hid him in a room before going back to Mr. Talier's office. Her heart was pounding. She feared she had screwed up everything by doing this. She shuddered at the thought of her employee suspecting something and firing her for good. But her fears vanished when he said to her in a fatherly tone, My poor Andre, you have been victim of a small-time thief. I don't blame you. You were acting in good faith when you offered me the services of this boy. You are not used to this kind of people. They are real sharks, ready to bite you at the slightest opportunity. Thank you, sir. I'm very much sorry and believe me that this will not happen again in the future. She didn't leave the room. She stayed there, standing, watching her boss trying to grab his cane with a groan of pain. She knew that the gout was taking its toll on him, that it almost immobilized him on some days. She knew he was vulnerable. You remember that little clock you were kind enough to buy for me for my bedroom wall? Well, it doesn't work anymore. Already? It was brand new. I suppose it is at the level of the balance wheel. Can you come and see it with me? Robert Taylor, leaning with difficulty on his cane, followed his housekeeper to her room. She showed him the about clock and he bent down to see the balance wheel. Suddenly, the old man was thrown to the ground. Robert Plant, lurking behind the wardrobe, had just bounced on him. He threw him to the floor and tried to choke him with a handkerchief. The old man, completely terrorized, struggled as best as he could. He was hit in the ribs, but the young man was stronger than him and quickly got the upper hand. Robert Talier then lost consciousness. When he woke up a few moments later, he discovered that he was sausaged, firmly tied up and unable to move. Wild profiteer! Paralytic old bastard! The time has come to pay for everything you've done! Robert Talier could hardly believe that his good housekeeper was addressing him like that. Next to her, he saw Robert Planet, the fake bullion seller, who gave him a nasty smile. The two accomplices put the unfortunate man in his office and forced him to sign bearer's checks worth several hundred thousand francs. Robert Taylor was trembling. As soon as he moved a little, André Ferré and her accomplice slapped him. 
In his fright, he let the ink spill out and ruin the paper. So they made it do it all over again. Then the housekeeper made him sign more deeds of gift, attesting that from now on, all the furniture and flat itself would be hers. After signing the deed of gift and dispossessing himself of all his possessions in writing, Robert Taylor gave his housekeeper a pleading look and she mercilessly applied a handkerchief of ether to his mouth as he felt his last strength leave him. The former businessman saw with horror a large wicker trunk being drawn towards him. He now knew that his end was near. Robert Planet strangled him and placed his body inside the luggage. The operation had been long, the agony of Robert Taylor painful. Now that they had got rid of the most delicate part of their sinister ambush, the two accomplices gave themselves a truce before moving on. They went down to the kitchen while the housekeeper prepared a meal for the young man. She even fetched a few bottles of Sauvignon from the cellar so that he could regain his strength. After the meal, the two thugs slept together again on the table amidst the dishes and the food. The next morning, André Ferré sent her accomplice to the bank to withdraw the money. Robert Planet was given the money without any worries. The cashier noted that everything was in order and gave him the tidy sum of 800,000 francs in cash. Left alone in the flat, the housekeeper learned that the driver she had hired earlier had decided to leave her at the last minute. This made her very angry. She had to find a replacement and right away, a new driver was hired the same day, a big guy named Maurice Chatelaine. Now she had to act quickly. André Ferré dismissed Robert Planet after giving him his reward, 150,000 francs, enough for him to marry and live a good life for a long time. She ordered him to never prowl the area again. Maurice Chatelaine, her new chauffeur, arrived early in the morning of Sunday, 6 February, 1949 at 64 Joffroy Street. On the orders of the housekeeper, he placed the trunk open of the car before moving it into another location. But the trunk was too small to hold it, so he decided to hold it up with rope. An hour later, they set off. André Ferré, majestically seated on the back seat, held her bag containing the entire fortune and the donations document tightly to her chest. Paris was just waking up when the white Matford crossed the Bois de Volon before setting off towards Tours and then one day the last stage of their journey. The early evening, the two passengers finally arrived in Le Sable d'Olon. Maurice Chatelain, on the orders of the housekeeper, unloaded the trunk, which they both carried to a cliff. The slope was steep. Below the sea roared. The weather was freezing and it was dark all around. The driver was a little apprehensive, but André Ferré seemed sure of what she was doing. By the way, little lady, didn't you tell me what was in the trunk? My boss's weapons, war trophies, that he wants to get rid of at all costs. Is the interrogation almost over? Here, help me pull the trunk to the edge instead of yapping. But Maurice was only half convinced by this answer. The nervousness of the housekeeper alerted him, and he sensed that the matter was much more strange than it seemed. After a final push, they succeeded in throwing the trunk containing Robert Taylor's corpse into the waters of Fair. The next day, the driver and the housekeeper make the return trip to Paris, which took almost a day. On arrival, André Ferré decided to not to return to the flat and instead went to an auctioneer to sell off the furniture. To stay the night, she booked a room in a hotel on Gomat Street. She gave Maurice 10,000 francs and dismissed him for good with orders not to contact her again. Happy with his reward, the man still had his doubts. The story about weapons was very strange. And so was the woman. The important thing was that she kept her word by paying him the amount she promised. This was Tuesday, 7 February, 1949, and Marshall Taylor was trying desperately to contact his uncle. He had a very good news to tell him. His wife had just given birth to a son. 
the family heir, and his own at the same time. The nephew's numerous attempts to reach him were in vain. His uncle did not answer his calls. He found it really strange. Usually, his uncle Robert always answered the phone. His cat prevented him from moving around too much, so he knew from the start that he would be sitting behind his desk most of the time, with a handset always within reach. Worried Marshall Taylor rushed all the way to Geoffroy Street in order to verify everything was fine. He knocked on the door of the flat, but nobody answered the door. Panicked, he went downstairs to ask the concierge. But Mr. Tallier is no longer there. He's been away in Switzerland for nearly three days with Miss Faray, his housekeeper. Oh, but he didn't tell you? Marshall Taylor opened his eyes wide. Switzerland? That was not in keeping with his uncle's agenda. He had never spoken to him about going to Switzerland in the last few days. He sensed that there was something else going on. Knowing his uncle, he knew that he was not that type to make impromptu trips abroad at the last minute. Accompanied by the concierge, Marshal Taylor went to the Monso police station to report the disappearance. The policeman heard his request, went to find a locksmith, and sent a mobile patrol to Geoffroy Street. The interior of the flat was in great disorder. Marshal Taylor went round calling his uncle Robert, but got no answer. The police found traces of blood next to the missing man's desk. In his housekeeper's room, they found traces of struggle, overturned chairs, and more blood. Back to the police station, the concierge said that on Sunday, 6.30 a.m., while taking out the rubbish, she had seen a large white Matford car parked in front of the gate. She saw a big, strong man get out. He helped Miss Faray, the housekeeper, to load a large wicker trunk into the boot. Based on this testimony, the police published a missing notice on Le Parisien and sent the file to her higher authorities. From that moment on, things quickly accelerated and became interwined. After two days of searching, they were contacted by the police in Sable Stallone. The body of Mr. Robert Taylor was found in a wicker trunk, previously thrown into the sea. Their initials, Artie, sewn into his suit, and the photo published in the newspapers allowed him to be identified immediately. The theses of murder and ambush were then evoked. As the search began, the police at the Manso police station in Paris were contacted by the driver Maurice, who had also heard the news through the newspaper. In a fit of conscience, he called the police station. I was a transporter of Tellier's remains in a vehicle, and I also helped to throw the trunk into the Pied Fair, he said. He then told the policeman when he and the housekeeper Fari returned to Paris, she asked her to take him to a hotel in Gaumont Street. With a little bit of luck, she would still be there. Without wasting a minute, the policeman went to the address indicated. They asked for the receptionist if a certain Lady Faray, small, dark-haired, in her 40s, was among the residents. Yes, there was a woman who looked like that, but her name was Isabelle Dumont. Sensing that the case was close to a conclusion, the policeman remained on the spot, watching for the return of the mysterious Isabelle Dumont. And then she came, wearing apparel from famous brand in Vendome Place. She was immediately arrested. The housekeeper struggled, screamed, spat, insulted the policeman, claimed to be innocent, and it was with great difficulty that they managed to get her into the van and took her to the police station. Facing Inspector Pinot, Isabelle Dumont, alias André Ferret, said she was above suspicion. She also blamed her accomplice Robert Planet. Planet, who in the meantime was living happily with his reward money. When he went down to collect the newspaper, he was shocked to find his photo on the front page. With his back to the wall, he tried to hide as quickly as possible. If that's the case, the police was already on his tail at this very moment. The police, for their part, found a little about him, his habits, and his personality. André Ferré portrayed him as a playboy. 
an incompetent and a scoundrel, not very clever though, and quickly taking the bait. That immediately gave the police an idea to catch him. They put a fake advert in the newspaper, hoping that he will follow it up. A film company seeking actor for supporting role, handsome, dark-haired, could pay. And he fell for it, completely gullible. Robert Planet went to the address indicated in the ad and was in turn arrested by the police. At the police station, the confrontation between him and the former governess was terrible. As soon as she saw him arrive in the interrogation room, Andre Fare started to insult him, calling him names. Planet with his head down and hands handcuffed said nothing. Andre Fare continued to deny the facts for a long time before finally confessing to everything. Her addiction to ether, which messed her brain, the wealth of her former boss, which enraged her, the checks and the deeds of gift that she made him sign by force under threat. She even admitted to having exploited her accomplice, to having slept with him, to get him hooked on, turning him into a kind of slave. She literally emptied her bag in front of the Inspector Pinot, who was dumbfounded by such horror, villainy and cruelty. Of the two, Robert Planet was the worse. He risked the death penalty, while the governess, as a woman, could be pardoned. He was not, so it was in his interest to find a good lawyer capable of saving him from the gallows. And this lawyer was the defender of the indefensible, the one who a few years earlier defended the abominable Dr. Petio. Following their interrogation, the two accomplices were placed in provisional detention while awaiting their trial. The trial began on 7 December 1950 at the Assise de la Seine, while in the box of the accused, Robert Planet went quietly and did not say a word. André Ferré made scenes worthy of tragic comedy. She tore her hair out, yelled out at the audience, insulted her lawyer, Mr. Hubert, and accused the police of having tried to rape her when she was in her cell. When the judge gave the floor to Robert Planet, the latter was sincere. He confessed that the governess had trained and subjugated him through sex. At one point, he even believed he could become her lover. A disapproving murmur crossed the room. Maitre Furio said that his client's only fault was that he had been manipulated in the whole affair and that in reality he had never wanted to kill Robert Taylor. The driver Maurice was also there and he testified at large. Although he had helped André Ferrier to throw the body into the Pieux d'Enfer, he was not prosecuted. Long before the deliberations, death already seemed to hover in the courtroom. Before allowing the jury to retire to deliberate, the public prosecutor requested two death sentences for the two defendants. The deliberations lasted only about 30 minutes, at the end of which the following verdicts was reached. Andre Ferrer was sentenced to death, while Robert Planet managed to save his own life by being sentenced to 20 years of hard labor in the West Indies. True to her usual haughty nature, Andre Ferrer received the verdict with contempt. In 1950, the former governess was granted a presidential pardon and her sentence was changed to life imprisonment. She died of cancer in 1970 at the age 61. Imprisoned in a labor camp in Martinique, Robert Planet was still in the news for some time before disappearing altogether. Some say that he was murdered by a fellow prisoner, others that he was taken by a tropical disease, and yet others say he fled to South America. The producer and writer George Clouseau was present at all hearings of the murderous duo and was inspired to produce Led Diaboliques in 1954, as well as Alfred Hitchcock for his film Vertigo, released in the United States in 1958. The story of the bloody trunk of the Pew d'Enfer, a heinous crime committed by amateur criminals in search of easy money, has long remained in the annals of the French legal system and has left its mark on the Vendée region for having served as a backdrop.
Even today, the geographical side of the Poudon Fair in Les Sables de Long continues to perpetuate its macabre legend, long nourished by this crime which gave its reputation as a cursed place. Amateur criminals putting geographical distance between the scene of crime and the place of its concealment does not prevent investigators from tracing it back to them. We interrogated the Taylor Morris, who assured us that Robert Taylor is his client, who always had the same style of suit made and always paid regularly. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.